Everyone, listen. You're listening to episode 185 of the Mad Chatters podcast, April 18th, 2018. Most everyone's mad here. And welcome to the Mad Chatters podcast, your very important date with the happenings at Walt Disney World and around the Disney universe. My name's Derek, and I'm joined by my fellow chatters, Matthew. Namaste, Rafiki, and Kobe. And Jeremy. Not a zoo, but always your boo. Uh As you're probably aware, this Sunday is April 22nd. And while most of the world recognizes that as Earth Day, we Disney fans take special note of the day for a different reason. April 22nd, 2018 marks the 20th anniversary of Disney's Animal Kingdom. And since it's not every day a Disney park turns 20 years old. We want to dedicate this entire episode to the park, which is the youngest of Walt Disney World's four parks. So a little bit later, we're going to talk about some of our favorite fun facts that set Animal Kingdom apart from other theme parks. But first, we're going to host an Animal Kingdom themed edition of Munchies and Merch. Got to teach you about food. Close your eyes. Now, take a bite of this. Ah, no! 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 Don't just fork it down! <laughs> oh, yes. I'm rumbling my tumbly. Time for something sweet. And, speaking of champions, friends, Canine Crunchies is the champion of all dog biscuits. So we haven't done this segment in a while, but basically we usually pick a piece of merchandise and a food or drink item that we have our eyes on that looks interesting or good to us. Um, but for this segment, we're either going to do that or we're just going to, in general, talk about some of the best food and some of the best merchandise we've ever seen or purchased at Disney's Animal Kingdom. So with that being said, Matt, do you want to kick us off? Yeah, for my... Do I have to go and order munchies and merch? Munchie then merch? You do you. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it in that order now that I'm thinking about it. I'm going to go with my munchie first, which is... Something that I have uh, seen for a little while now, but have never tried. 
and that is Mr. Kamal's Fries. Are you familiar with these? Where are they? Um, you know, I don't know where they are. I've just seen them all over various other Disney reporting entities talking about food. <laughs> yeah, so they're seasoned fries that are topped with, um, they call it a tzatziki salad. But it's basically just tzatziki sauce with some tomatoes in it, um, which is still probably delicious. And kind of like a little drizzle of sriracha ketchup. Ooh. I can tell you that Mr. Kamal's is in Asia. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. Kind of got a blending of the worlds here. You know, French fries, Greek tzatziki sauce, and <laughs> Asian hot sauce. But um, it sounds sounds fabulous to me. That does sound good. Um, my merchandise is pretty boring. And it's just the uh, You Are Here mug 2.0 from Animal Kingdom. I have all the originals, but just today I was kind of looking at all of the, I don't know what you call them, the second second ones, the B, B team. I don't <laughs> <laughs> this, I like the colors on this one. The red and the gray are really cool. Have Everest and there's a little Cali River Rapids boat coming down. And in that same kind of minimalist, you know, design as the first set. But um, of course I want all of those. Yeah, well, I mean, speaking of Asia, I believe that mug is only attractions that you see in Asia. Is that what they're doing with all of the other ones? The second ones? Yeah, I think you're right. Because Magic... Magic Kingdom was... Yeah. Fantasyland, right? Yeah, just Fantasyland. Well, I want it. So Yeah, it's nice. Uh, my munchies and merch, I'm going to start with the munchies, and I want to honor... Uh, Animal Kingdom's most controversial snack, and that was the poop brownies. Um, I think they should bring <laughs> them back for the 20th anniversary. And even though I've never had these, and I probably never will have these, there is not a time that goes by that I don't eat something that's maybe brown, maybe a little, <laughs> little fibrous. And I think this could be a poop brownie. <laughs> this this could be easily. What what animal does this remind me of their feces? Uh, mm. And so it, it has changed my world in more ways than it ever probably intended to. So shout out to the Animal Kingdom poop brownies. I hope they come back. Yeah. I mean, for those who don't know, the, like these debuted when Harambe Market opened, I think, over at Zuri Sweet Shop. And they lasted for a very, very short period of time. But there were four different animals, and it straight up said, like, giraffe poop right in front of it. And it was shaped to look like it. Did yeah. you ever find out why they stopped selling them? Well, I, I imagine the marketing wasn't the best on them. And that's probably why sales <laughs> suffered. Because when you're trying to sell things to the public, maybe calling it giraffe poop, <laughs> edible giraffe poop, is not... They uh, missed an opportunity in not calling it scat snacks. <laughs> oh, I feel like this is one of those things where if they had waited like a month, it would have taken off on social media, like the purple wall, for instance, you know, and everybody would have had to get an Instagram photo with giraffe poop. Yeah, mm, I'm, I'm going to call no on that one, but uh, you're you're a little more hopeful than I. Of course, you're you're hipper and cooler than I am, Derek. So maybe <laughs> it would have been the next pretzels of WDW. Yes, by the way, the Instagram account is taking off, so get on on the ground floor if you want to be. I'm, I'm following back all up to 100 followers, so you better get in. Oh, 100. Oh, that's exclusive. 
What exactly. is this now? <laughs> Listen to last week's episode. You'll you'll. Know. I'll tell you. Oh, okay. um, anyways, my merchandise is uh, something that I actually hope Derek will pick up for me if he's available to do so, and I'll venue Venmo you the money. Um, it's a these 20th anniversary limited edition pins that are going to be available for Animal Kingdom, and the ones I'm talking about, the the two that I really like, they on the on the outside they're like gold and with the dark lettering or whatever and they both have 20 like an animal kingdom style print it says 20 and then one has like a deer on it and one has a tiger and then it's clasped shut so it swings open almost like a a book mm -hmm. if you would and on the inside of the one with the deer there's a picture of walt with uh, the deer from when they were doing like the the, the bambi concept art and, and animation and then the one with the tiger is Walt at his desk with two tigers, which I believe was from when he did the openings for uh, the television programming shows, things when in the 50s. I just love these. I love that they are tying Animal Kingdom to Walt Disney and kind of showing that Walt always had a vision for this type of a park, even though he didn't necessarily explicitly say it. Uh, but he always had a connection to animals. And so I love these. Yeah, I saw those. I thought, just from looking at the pictures, I thought they were lockets. I didn't realize they were pins. No, they're, they're pins. Uh, and the one with the tiger is a pass holder exclusive. Mm. So edition, uh, only 2,000 of those will be sold. And then the deer one is, I guess, available to everybody. And 4,000 of those will be available. And depending on the price, like I said, I may have, have to uh, get those. I'm not going to spend uh, $50 on them, but you know. Yeah. Um, well, I'm about to send you guys a picture of the merchandise I'm looking at because it too is exclusive to the 20th anniversary. And it is this wood panel. It's an 11 by 17 wood panel that they're releasing and it has art. I mean, it's basically just an, an all, all exclusive or all inclusive Animal Kingdom piece of art. So you see like the floating mountains and you see a bunch of animals and you see Everest and you see the dinosaur um institute the dino institute there but it's all like carved into this piece of wood and i really really like it um but yeah it's just like a wood carving that you'd hang on your wall and unfortunately it's 125 dollars, so i don't think i'll be buying it but it's pretty uh i like the floating mountains in the distance like that's a real place Oh, uh, I thought those were bongos, but they're floating mountains. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> they do kind of look like that. But yeah, with the banshee kind of gives it away. So anyway. Oh, okay. I see it now. We're not interpreting this well. <laughs> <laughs> no, I like it. Here's the thing. Like, here's my only critique of this. And I'm not an art critic, but I'm going to do it anyways. Um, it's just, it's, al it's almost too sparse, but it's, it's like they could have added a few more animals in there. You know what I mean? Yeah, the bottom half uh, is like, there's a lion. It's like a children's book. <laughs> kind of, but like, like look up by the buildings, there's like animals and it's like really cohesive. But then down by the tiger, there's like a lot of empty space. It's like you could have thrown in a few more things it, in there. Can you cut it in half and buy it for $62? <laughs> I will ask. That's what I would do. <laughs> Excuse me, sir. I have already cut this in half. Will you please sell <laughs> Uh, well, the other 
the munchie I'm going to mention is, is something more reasonable. And it's something that I think about getting every single time I'm there. It's at Trilo Bites, which is when you're just heading into Dino Land from Discovery Island. And you kind of go under that bridge where uh, the Boneyard is. Or you're about to go under that bridge. And there's that little kiosk on your right. And they sell buffalo chicken chips. So it's basically house-made potato chips. And then it's got shredded buffalo chicken, blue cheese crumbles, and like a drizzle of ranch dressing. And whenever someone walks away from the window with their plate, like it's so full. It's got huge chunks of chicken on it. And it just looks so good to me. I just have never been hungry at the right time, I guess. Well, stop snacking on all your little granola bars and things and, and kind of go get some real food. I hate you. Hey, he's got to have his, his bowel movements. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Anyway, so one of these days, I'll get it. It's time for Take 5. <laughs> I thought you weren't going to do it for a second. <laughs> I'd like to build the anticipation. Mm. Uh, this is the um, segment in which we throw out a topic or question or whatever, and we respond to it with only five words. And good news tonight, guys, since it's been a while since we've done this, I'm playing within the rules tonight. Wow. I know, hard to believe. Hard to believe. These categories were probably the hardest ever for me to narrow down to five words. That means you're only like using five words. Is that what you mean by playing within the rules? Yeah, because you know, usually I'm a little loosey goosey with that, but uh, mm-hmm. uh, I decided to be conventional tonight. So well. here we go, and it's all Animal Kingdom related in honor of their twentieth anniversary. So topic number one. A rejected tagline for Chester and Hester's Dino-Rama. Wow, this sucks so authentically. (laughs) I can't believe it was rejected. Uh, Chester and Hester's, and then the tagline, The Paradise Paving Parking Lot. Get it? That's a thinker, yeah. Uh, mine also has to do with the parking lot. <clears throat> Chester and Hester's. The or, or, the is not included. Okay. <clears throat> Chester and Hester's. Best crack since Whitney Houston. Oh, my. Too soon? I don't think so. All right. Uh, the next one. What my really means. Uh, for those of you who don't know, is it, am I pronouncing that correctly? Would you, Ma-e-wa, is that what you said? Ma-e-wa. Ma-e-wa. Well, Ma-e-wa is the, the, what is sung repeatedly in the Navi River Journey by the, uh, by the witch doctor. The demon lady, yes. <laughs> also known as Shaman. The Shaman, yes. I love her. She's great. She kind of reminds me of Whoopi Goldberg. Uh, but what is she saying over and over again? What does Ma-Iwa mean? It means, should have fast-passed flight of passage. 
I think you should have to sing that、uh, as the interpretation as she does. Should a fast pass flight of passage?、Uh, you were too on key. Sorry. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, it's got the drop at the end. Ah.、Uh. <laughs> Uh, can I use theirs? Is theirs like there is? Is that. Oh, yeah. Oh, you're good. Yeah. Okay. Because it makes sense with the rhythm. There's no point to this ride. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's, no, there's no drop, you know. There's no drop <laughs> at the end. You know, my interpretation, what she's actually doing is it's that subliminal advertising. You know how Disney likes to do that with their products, just like other advertising people do. So, my Iwa, what she's really singing is Blue People Cupcakes. Yum, yum. <laughs> what? <laughs> she's trying to tell you, go get a cupcake. Or Sex Tail Cupcakes. Yum, yum. Y'all just, you just put words together. <laughs> All of mine, whenever I, I had a few words left, I just added yum to it. <laughs> All right, our next、uh, category Bad animal replacement ideas for the petting zoo at Rafiki's Planet Watch. If you've never been out there before, you know, the children and the adults, they can go out and they can pet some goats. You can pet, I think, a pig, a llama, maybe. Is there a llama there? I feel like there's a llama. I don't remember. Maybe there, I know there's a cow. Isn't there a cow? <laughs> I don't. I love how you say, I know there's a cow. Is there a cow? <laughs> the cow, I think, is too, like, it's in its own little separate pen that you can only pet it when it comes to the front. But the goats are everywhere, and the, the pig is kind of everywhere. So, anyways, bad replacement animals for the petting zoo. Meet the Fab Five IRL. So,、oh. I'm picturing like two mice, a couple <laughs> ducks, and a dog. <laughs> gotcha.、Oh, I was thinking the costume characters out there, and you just like walk up and pet them. <laughs> Good news. <laughs> Or that. <laughs> um, animal scat touch and taste experience. <laughs> Gross. How about, you know, you're a four year old child, your mother gives you poop to eat at the.、Uh, You know, the restaurant, and then you go out there and you think, well, maybe this poop's edible as well.、Mm. I smell a lawsuit.、Uh, my five words rabid guinea pigs in heat. Yeah, these, these all sound terrible, and yet I don't know if they're worse <laughs> than the petting zoo, honestly.、Uh, JK. Okay. JK.、Uh, next category Things Derek yells during Up, a great bird adventure. Thank you for this. <laughs> for, you to, for those who don't know, just tuning in, Derek does not like birds. So mine comes in a particular setting. Like a small bird, not scary at all, flies over the crowd. What is that, a pterodactyl? <laughs> <laughs> okay, I dislike birds. I'm not an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not, like, for real. Oh.、Uh. It's like on Frasier when Niles is afraid of bugs and he goes into the woods and one buzzes around and he says, What is that, a hummingbird? How ironic that you would mention Frasier in the very show that still has a Frasier crane joke. It was fresh in my memory. Wow.、Uh, this is what I am going to yell when I see this show. 
I prefer my birds fried. <laughs> yeah. You get very ghetto when you yell it as well. <laughs> well, you know, it comes out on occasion. Uh, my five words. Yeah, I won't be yelling any of those things. All right, and our last category, the real reason Beastly Kingdom was never built. I'll go first. Eisner said, not enough splash. Oh my gosh, I almost put something exactly <laughs> like that. I was going to say something like, uh, Eisner said, no splash, no, I forget, but that's crazy. No splash, no cash. <laughs> no, the real reason Beastly Kingdom was never built. Giant sorcerer's hats are expensive. Mm. <laughs> you right. They would have plopped that right there. Oh. No, I meant because they were currently building that for a different part. Oh, I thought you were saying they're going to build one there. No. In Beastly Kingdom, you know, because it's imagination and sorcery. No, because Michael Eisner said yes, but Joe Rohde said no, and he gets the final say. Mm. True that. I'll remind you of the category. The real reason Beastly Kingdom was never built. It was just too expensive. I mean, <laughs> I can't argue with that. Well, on that anticlimactic note, <laughs> it's no it's no two elephants side by side, but I'll give it to That's you. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yes. In honor of 20 years of Animal Kingdom, a park that I think the three of us enjoy very much. I know Jeremy has said that this is his favorite Disney park. I tell you, it hasn't always been that way, but these last few years, it has jumped up there. I think that cohesively, it is the best park, the best Disney park in the U.S. right now. I would certainly argue it is the best it has ever been in its current state. Uh, and in honor of 20 years of this park, we are going to list 20 facts about Animal Kingdom that we love. We love the facts, and because of these facts, we love Animal Kingdom. So, without further ado, let's just get it started. And I'm going to do that with fact number one. Imagineers, while designing, Disney's Animal Kingdom traveled all over the world and studied real cultures in order to collect research. Now, a lot of these facts, like this one, are going to be pretty obvious. You probably know them, but I just it, it's so fascinating to me, a lot of these, because they really are what set Animal Kingdom apart from other theme parks. And the fact that Disney sent these Imagineers on probably half a dozen 
excursions around the world to make sure the park was authentic. I think it's pretty unique to Animal Kingdom. It, it is, and it, it set up it set a precedent for theme parks from that point on. Whether or not you know that the Harry Potter expansions and other things are obviously fictional, and they they didn't go to Hogwarts and studied the stuff, but <laughs> but Animal Kingdom. Specifically, when you got into Asia, and well, even Africa, I mean, are set a precedent for how theme parks deal with detail in their in their lands. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure that started with with Animal Kingdom. I mean, you know, things in Epcot and uh, World Showcase and things around the Magic Kingdom are you know nice and pretty and they and they look great, but not not this level of of detail. Well, I think the thing, too, that separates Animal Kingdom from particularly the World Showcase is the World Showcase is uh, picturesque. It's almost yeah. like a postcard kind of a feel. Um, the thing with like Africa and Asia, I feel like they were not afraid to show the ugly side. Yeah. Necessarily uh, pretty on, on a, in a picture, but it's very authentic. Uh, you know, I'm partic- thinking yeah. particularly, you know, the cracks in the buildings and the way that like all the telephone wires are all, you know, yeah. crossing. That's a that's a good point. And the queues, as as great as the queues are, you probably do need to know what to expect to appreciate them. Uh, Expedition Everest and Cali River Rapids come to mind uh, specifically because of how kind of it really feels like they've discovered this ancient temple and rigged up electricity in it. And the the authenticity of that can come across as wow they they didn't really put a lot of effort into here but that's kind of the point yeah. like is not Disney Imagineers making the most beautiful lighting ever it's the local villagers have strung up some fluorescent lights in here so you can see at night yeah if you're a fan of Animal Kingdom one of the best follows on Instagram is Joe Rody and I know we've talked about this but he often posts photos that he took on these very excursions that they you know they travel to Africa he took pictures of all these artifacts all these people groups all these locations and every once in a while he still posts pictures from those trips and he ex- and just looking at it you can see the tie-in to Animal Kingdom but then his very long caption will usually explain like how it inspired something that we now see in the park pretty cool yeah and it's really interesting because these things could have easily taken a very cartoony approach uh but they kept them very authentic and i think that's only going to come from actually being on the ground in these places and experiencing them instead of just doing a, a an internet search i mean none of us have been to nepal or anything like that so if we were to try to recreate that experience uh i don't think it would come across I mean, we, we could definitely get a message across, but it wouldn't come across as very authentic. And so these kind of trips definitely grounded the project. And like I said, kept it away from that cartoony, parody, idealized sort of aspect that sometimes Disney and other theme parks tend to to uh, draw towards. Yeah, that actually segues nicely into uh, fact number two. Well, then why don't I read it since I'm segging? Animal Kingdom fact number two. Animal Kingdom features a lived-in design in order to recreate real-world locations. Yeah, I mean, it's just like you said with, um, like, the cracks and the the fact that, you know, you see the telephone wires in Africa. I always come back to those because they did not have to include that because 
you know, when you go from Magic Kingdom to that, that you could easily just see those as being tacky. Like, why are there telephone wires all over this area? But mm. that's the thing. Like, they've created these locations as if people actually live and work there. And that's why the posters that you see are peeling from the walls. And that's why when you go over to Asia, you see all those bicycle tracks, like, in the actual pavement, you know? They've created that there because they give this feeling like it's lived in. Yeah, I'm thinking of the... Is it like clothes or like rugs that are like strung up on like the second level in Africa? Like there's things laid over banisters. I don't know if it's like just rugs that are out to dry or, or clothes or something, but. Well, I know Harambe Market has a ton of like clothes and pots and pans and stuff. But also even like in the Expedition Everest queue where you have uh, people throwing coins and, and those kind of things, they're not being picked up every single day that you probably would expect something like that in the Magic Kingdom to happen if somebody were to toss coins into a certain uh, highly viewed guest area. Uh, but, you know, it kind of gives this authentic feel that, yeah, it's kind of obnoxious and why American people have to do that, uh, <laughs> do, but it, it's like offering the coins to the Yeti, you know, which is something that they do over there in, in offering sacrifices. The way that the prayer flags are weathered and not changed and kept to look pristine uh, that, that that's details there that you, on one hand you can be like, well, that's lazy, but on the other hand, it's no, it's it's keeping that authentic feel that this is not just a theme park, but this is a real world experience that you're getting. It feels like an oxymoron, what I'm about to say, but I always use the word beautiful when describing Animal Kingdom to people who have never been there. Like it's just such a beautiful park. And then we're talking about the fact that the buildings are made to look weathered and it's sort of rough around the edges and kind of dirty on purpose. And so that feels like they should be opposite. But I think that kind of stuff is what makes it beautiful some way, somehow. Yeah, it's not. Well, it's not. <laughs> it's weird. It's not ugly. It is. It's the and all the um, the landscaping and things that they've chosen to use. In the, in the Well, the two main areas, you know, that we're thinking of being authentic, obviously, are Africa and Asia, uh, which are like half of the park. So that's a huge chunk. Um, but like the, the bamboo and the other things in Asia and uh, the various African shrubbery in Africa, because <laughs> I don't know what they are. Uh, all that adds to the to the to the beauty of it. And it's, it's, again, there are touches of like theme park you know, um, photo-friendly postcard stuff. I mean, there, there are certainly some great places to take pictures of Everest and um, Cali River Rapids and on all the all the picturesque things there are. It doesn't mean it's ugly. Uh, so they've, they've provided a wonderful magical balance between postcard perfection and real world. And kind of in the middle there is really, really pretty. Yeah. Well, you know... Perfection does not mean beauty. And beauty is not limited to only perfection. There That's is, what the Bible says. The Bible do say that. Mm. And, uh, you know, there's there's something to be said about finding beauty in the flaws. Finding beauty in the brokenness that is there. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yes. Hashtag beauty in the brokenness. She reads truth. <laughs> Hashtag write, write your name on her arm. Whatever that uh, was. Yeah. <laughs> Hashtag... <laughs> Coney 12, whatever. <laughs> our third fact in our lineup uh, tonight, today, 
The park features acres of rock work more than any other park. I have not honestly really ever thought about that. I would think, does this include the water parks? Oh, that's interesting. I would think yes. It's a lot of rock work. Well, I mean, if you count just Everest alone and then now Pandora, I guess so. It's a lot of stuff. And and the, the amount of detail um, that it takes to do rock work. I mean, you, you could go down to any like miniature golf putt-putt place and they have a mountain, you know, and it's all right looking. But the amount of I – mean, I don't know if this is the appropriate term, but shading – and color blending that, that Disney does with their painting is what, and I mean, spackling fake moss on it, you know, the yeah. way they do with the cement and things like that is uh, amazing to me. Actually, a lady here at our church, her stepdad was one of the rock carvers, one of the guys that they hired to come in and do the carving of the rock work in Pandora. And it was super hush hush. I never got any details from him, but I thought that was pretty cool. That is cool. Uh, Joe Rody recently did an interview for 23 Magazine, and this was one of his big points in it, because he was talking about how to you, like to the naked eye, it just looks like a natural world. But you have to keep in mind, this is Florida, which is perfectly flat. He said it's 10 inches above the water table. So to build this, quote, natural environment, we had to use rock work, you know, whereas in Fantasyland, to build this fake environment, you just build buildings, you know? Yeah. They're just concrete structures or whatever. Oh, but. wow. I, would, I really didn't even think about, um, Lord, what's the front part of the park? Um, not Discovery Island, but the Oasis. Yeah. And that's all, all artificial. Yeah. And people just breeze by it. Yeah, and, and we're like the lion's roam around you know where they lie down at night yeah yeah uh, just some just some chicken wire and some cement <laughs> i mean <laughs> i read this fact on one side i don't know how accurate it is but they um a few sites have claimed that there's one million square feet of rock work which is twice the volume of rock work in the mount rushmore sculpture so who knows that's crazy to think about that's a lot of rock mm-hmm and and they don't really get credit for it because you just think, oh yeah, they put a rock there. <laughs> they found a big boulder and put it there. Yeah, no, but it's so incredibly different. I mean, between you know the the mountains and the the all grief, all the rock work needed for a ride like well, not just Everest, but think about Cali River Rapids, mm-hmm. and that's a totally different rock type. I'm not a geologist, but. I'm just using common sense. Then what the the lions crawl on in Africa and then the stuff in Pandora and then the stuff in the Oasis. It really is all over the place. Yeah, most guests take it for granted. Ah, I like it. So fact number four is something that certainly sets Animal Kingdom apart from the other parks. Animal Kingdom has no Main Street USA style entrance and it has no hub and spoke design. So the hub and spoke is, I mean, Magic Kingdom is the definitive version of this, where you have the center, and then coming out from the center are all these different entrances to the other lands. So sort of hub and spoke design. Animal Kingdom is completely different from all that. It it does have a circular sort of setup in a way. Um, But I, I like that because I think it mimics nature in that when you look at things in nature, there is a symmetry but it's not always 
like we said before, perfect. Um, so, you know, it, it may wander a little bit or it may be deviated because of natural courses or whatever. So, yeah, your circle around uh, the Tree of Life it's a circle, but it's not a perfect circle. And, uh, you know, and then on the other side, it, one side of the park doesn't match the other side of the park. The paths may split in different ways uh, because of the way that evolution of the design or whatever has, has taken. So, Yeah, it's the only park in which the park icon is not seen from the main entrance. And Joe Rody has talked about this as well, how that was obviously intentional and how they wanted you to instantly feel like you're walking in. This was going to be a different park. Like you were going to know that right from the start. And they wanted it. They, uh, his quote was, it wanted, he wanted it to be a place governed by the rules of nature, a place guests need to explore in order to discover. And that's how it is. Like you walk in the front entrance and right in front of you are just like trees and grass and then like two small pathways on either side. And you're kind of like, where do I go? <laughs> like, where am I supposed to go from here? And a rainforest cafe. And, and that, yes. Which is so exactly as nature intended it to be. Um, you know, it's interesting talking about the Tree of Life as well, how they went through different concepts trying to figure out which icon to pick. And I can't remember all of them, but my favorite one that they said that they considered was sort of this giant carousel. Uh, merry-go-round looking thing with all animals bouncing up and down can you imagine how awful that would have been <laughs> yeah yeah i mean not just giant it was gonna have three different levels with i think i read that like one level would represent animals on land and then animals on sea and then animals that fly i think that's what it was gonna be can you imagine a three-tiered carousel no i'm so glad we got the tree of life that that feels so real and so I mean, again, we talked about how they, they avoided the cartooniness. A, a giant carousel, I don't care how many animals you, you throw on it, it's going to feel cartoony. What if it was all really, like, dark, earth-tony, wooden animal? It's going to be weird. Jane Goodall's going to be like, where's the chimpanzee carousel ride? And oh, no! That's interesting that you say that, Matt, because, I, I mean, that's what I'm picturing. Like, it would look exactly like the Tree of Life but carvings of animals, but I guess it wouldn't. It would just look like a carousel. Well, no, I mean, if they were to do it, that would be the best scenario Yeah, for it to be earthy and, and kind of hand-carved and, and janky-looking. But, yeah, if it was, like, carnival-style, like, playing, you know, in but the I jungle think... with a carousel organ and the, the lion sleeps tonight, that'd be <laughs> <laughs> But But the Tree of Life, like, to me, of course, in, in hindsight, it seems so obvious to do because one you have the tree of life that kind of is the you know the, the basis of of the evolutionary theory you know that in all the animals and then the flip side of that is you have the tree of life which has its biblical illusions as well and the garden of eden and the creation and that kind of thing so to me it's just the perfect fit to kind of represent this park that is so centered in nature and animals and creatures that why that didn't just pop out from the beginning, who knows, but... Yeah. Hmm. Fact number five. The Tree of Life features over 300 animal carvings. Now, this is what I was referring to when I made my Jane Goodall joke there a little bit ago, is that Jane Goodall famously visited Animal Kingdom right before it opened. They were taking her on a tour all around, showing her the beautiful carvings that were featured in the Tree of Life. And she noticed that there was no chimpanzee carving, which Jane Goodall, of course, most famous for her studies of chimpanzees. So they really quick added a chimpanzee. 
Oh my gosh. She studied all 300 animals and said, nope, I don't see any chimpanzees. Whoa, you got really bitter about that. But she was right. There was not a chimpanzee. I'm be like, look, we got a plane for you. Why don't you just get back on your plane? <laughs> Monkey woman. <laughs> we'll see you later. No, I'm glad they did. Because I think it's right there as you enter now um, the theater for It's Tough to Be a Bug. I believe the chimp is right there oh, cool. at the entrance. I mean, this is a feat. Like the tree of life. You, it's one of those things that after a while you kind of take it for granted. You know, you kind of breeze past it to head toward whatever attraction you're heading towards. But just the sheer number of hand-carved animals in this tree, and yet it still looks like the trunk of a tree. You know what I mean? They, they didn't get so far off base that it starts to just look like a totem pole of animals. It's pretty impressive. Lest we forget, not a real tree. You know, some people may think that. Uh, it is... Uh, made of an oil rig base, something you would see out in the middle of the Gulf that you know people got there and drew for oil with. Uh, so it is a massive structure. The the uh, theater for It's Tough to Be a Bug is underneath it, which I think is brilliant, just absolutely brilliant to put that that show there. Uh, all the leaves are fake and had to be attached by hand. Uh, like you said, the carvings. If I remember correctly, the the animal carvings when they laid the concrete down, they only had like something like eight to 10 hours to complete the carving before the, before the cement hardened. So that's a lot of pressure to get done and to get it done right <laughs> the first time. Uh, you know, I, I wonder, I do wonder if they ever had to chisel one off and restart, but I've never heard. Yeah. That. Like what mistakes are there on there? They're like, ah, it'll be, it'll be all brown and high up and <laughs> interesting. Yeah. yeah. So it, it is, it is really a marvel and something that, uh, Something that I think we take take for granted, as you said. Because when you look at the other icons, I mean, Cinderella Castle is pretty. And it, it, it has that fantasy-esque feel to it. Uh, Spaceship Earth is a is a, a scientific engineering kind of wonder, if I remember correctly, the way that they were able to build that. Uh, Hollywood Studios, who knows what their icon is anymore. But it's all... Gertie. It's Gertie. Aw, <laughs> Yeah. But the Tree of Life is the most artistic one of all. It is the one I think that took the most time and thought and effort to make a reality. So it should be appreciated. Yeah. Number six. No balloons or plastic lids and straws are sold in Animal Kingdom. Um, This is to protect the animals. Which... Like to protect the animals, like there, it, it seems to me, like is is it really to protect the animals, like the, at the park? I believe so. Yes. Yeah. Like, what do they expect to happen? Like, people are just gonna throw stuff in the, like, just throw plastic items into the the can, the exhibits. Would it surprise you if they did? <laughs> well, I think well, no, that- but not on like a mass scale. Like, as soon as a drink lid flies in the. The safari ride, a flamingo is going to stick his neck through it and be decapitated. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Just... But I'm thinking, I'm thinking it's intentional and accidental as well. But, you know, if it can protect one animal from, from choking or, or dying, then, yeah, that's an issue. With this park, particularly when it first opened, came under fire from a lot of animal rights groups. Um, saying that the animals were going to be abused, that it was not safe. I remember in particular one animal gr- rights group said that the fireworks from the neighboring 
parks would disturb the wildlife and this kind of thing. So Animal Kingdom smartly was doing everything they could to prevent such uh, things yeah. happening. Can you imagine if, if a rhino choked on a straw and died, the kind of publicity that Disney would get over that? Yeah, it seems though like uh, it, they did they did biodegradable straws, right? The paper ones. So it's like uh, I don't know. It always they hit me. As, it always hit me as a little bit of uh, some straight up virtue signaling, which I never quite understood because Disney suddenly cares about plastic items harm our environment, but they're sold by the millions in the other three theme parks. <laughs> yeah, well, and and the bathrooms still use paper towels, which is funny to me. Uh, but that, I will say, even just little things like that do help me believe that the animals are a priority at this park. I mean, think about how much money Disney makes off of balloons. And they have said, okay, we can't sell balloons in Animal Kingdom because there are just too many animals to take care of. Which is why I smuggle balloons in and sell them on the black market. So if, when I'm in the parks, if you'd like to buy a balloon, meet me next to Cali River Rapids. I'll be wearing the yeah. They'll send their people around to pop them all. <laughs> uh, to me, it's just a nuisance, and I care about animals as much as anybody. But <laughs> to me, the, the 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 paper straws, it's like, just don't even give me a straw. It just kind of, you know. Well, the problem is they get soggy really quick. Yeah. And, and then it kind of tastes like you're drinking through a paper straw. So yeah. <laughs> it's pretty gross. So, yeah, I don't even use a straw when I'm in the park. And that's fine. I'll sacrifice a little bit so that the animals can uh, can live without fear of choking on human waste. That's right. So maybe fact number six wasn't so fun for Matthew. But speaking of taking care of the animals and making them priority, fact number seven about Animal Kingdom is that on staff every single day at this park are scientists and biologists and horticulturists who take care of the wildlife who are there, first of all, but they're also constantly doing research in backstage areas that most guests won't even see. And this research actually this research actually benefits animals not just in the park, but of course they share this research with other people around the world, and it's actually in a way, in a very small way, protecting and preserving the animal kingdom worldwide which i think is is pretty cool i mean this could easily just be another zoo that allows you to come look at pretty animals uh but actual research is being done in this park every day yeah and i like to if you go out to rafiki's planet watch which i know my fellow co-hosts both despise but if you go out there um they have some really cool <laughs> educational stuff in the building there and I think it's every day you can catch uh, them bringing animals into the lab there to get their annual checkups and those kind of things. Everything from the turtles to some of the larger animals they bring in there and just do, uh, you know, like the little doctor checkups. And they'll, the windows are, are such that you can watch. They'll explain what's happening. Uh, so there is a lot of educational opportunities as well at the park, which I think, again, is wonderful because people need to learn how to – we. People need to learn how we can live together with our planet in order to help preserve it for the generations to come. I think that's the overall message of, of Animal Kingdom, is that this is the real world experience that you're getting. And uh, being a good citizen of this starts right in your own backyard. Nice. Which is why I'm drinking out of a paper straw right now. Mm, yeah, I bet. There are sites that list like all of the successful operations that the 
scientists have been able to perform to save animals. Like there's something about removing something from a snake's belly, like removing a rock or something and doing surgery on the bird's eye and all this kind of stuff, which is kind of cool. And I kept coming across this fact that they discovered, since Animal Kingdom opened, they've discovered two new forms of communication among the elephants there. Like the scientists who were studying the elephants discovered two new ways that elephants communicate with each other. And it all happened at this park. That's so cool. That is really cool. You know, I'm listening to this podcast. It's called Undiscovered. And basically they're like little 30 minute to 45 minute episodes about stories behind scientists and scientific discoveries that get lost in the shuffle. And one of them was some years ago when the stimulus package came out, uh, there were senators that made a big to do about where some of this government money was going and how it was being wasted. And one of the ones that got published all over the news was that there was this uh, scorpion, I think it was a scorpion fight club, some kind of animal, and <laughs> researchers were studying them fighting each other, as they do in nature or whatever. And it was a big joke, and oh, look, the government's wasting money on this. But it turned out that the research that was put into studying these things was used to now make better protective gear for the U.S. military. Um, because oh. they were showing how, wow, these scorpions, they're, they're taking hits at you know, this kind of velocity or whatever, and they're learning how that material held up and how they can translate that into human use. So you know, it may sound goofy to be like, who cares that we learned how elephants talk to each other? But you never know what kind of scientific breakthrough that's going to inspire down the road. That's the cool thing about science. Science is cool. Okay, uh, next fact. Got me all hopped up on science. Animal Kingdom fact number eight. The park is home to incredible feats of engineering, a lot of which are essentially invisible to the naked eye. Now, the first thing that popped into my head, at least when it comes to this sort of engineering, is the floating mountains in Pandora. Oh, yeah, for sure. It seems like a lot of weight hanging over your head that could fall when one of those elephants lets a crooked fart. <laughs> it's true. It's true. I, I walked inside this section with an engineer who does not work um who did not work on Pandora, but even he was just looking up and was like, Yeah, this is this is something special that they were able to do this. Uh yeah, Joe Rody recently talked about how the uh, the the vines that to your eye look like limp vines that serve no purpose whatsoever. But those are actually I mean that has to be steel to reinforce these mountains and keep them up which is just an engineering feat in itself to be able to make this deal look to your eye as if it's just hanging limply and doing nothing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm, I'm sure that there's a lot of math that goes into all those calculations <laughs> and things. Um, and God forbid they ever fall, because that would be a mess. And I think another thing that we uh, would look at as being an engineering feat would be over at Expedition Everest and the way that they were able to Build a mountain, but also build a roller coaster within a mountain. Yeah. It's like, yeah, we can we can switch a track over. And if you, if you look at it, it's not if you know how it works and watch it work. It's not it's not like a switch track. Like, you know, just it doesn't move. It doesn't move laterally. The thing literally like flips over, um, which is cool. But so if the same math was used to build the floating mountains 
that was used to build whatever janky piece of foundation they used for the Yeti that could not hold um, its weight. There's a lot to be feared over in, in Pandora. So I was like, yeah, lots of engineering things. But the one big thing everybody cares about, you kind of screwed up on. So let's go back and do do some more number crunching on, <laughs> on the Yeti. <laughs> That's sad. Yeah, but that being said, like, I'm sure making a roller coaster. No, I mean, I have a little experience with this. I've played Roller Coaster Tycoon when I was That's a kid. That's right. And but, it cannot get too fast. <laughs> it cannot get too fast. I'm sure building a roller coaster is, is a difficult process. But then to make an aesthetically pleasing mountain go around your roller coaster, that, that's got to be uh, a, little, a little more difficult. Yeah. A little more challenging. Yeah. And again, these are things that when you think about it are incredible, but they're built in such a way that you don't really think about it. You just accept it for what it is when you see it. Absolutely. Yeah. And I and I think there's a lot of other engineering feats that we don't even think about. I'm thinking about particularly on the Kilimanjaro safaris that they are also worried about how the eye line is going to be. So you're not just designing something for a purpose, but the, you're designing something to be aesthetically pleasing as well. That, that, that's an added challenge to it. So it's got to be functional, but it's gotta, it can't be ugly either. And it has to be pretty and, 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 and also functional for the animals that you don't want, you know, your giraffe getting caught in your rock work or whatever. So all kinds of engineering. And that's what uh, I think a lot of people fail to see. We, we, we recognize the artwork behind it, but we don't recognize the engineering. Yep. Um, speaking of Kilimanjaro safaris, that's the basis of our ninth fact, which is that Kilimanjaro safaris is the largest Disney attraction ever built. Which... Which we must make sure up front we, we, we understand, everybody knows that it's a free-roaming vehicle, like a truck, that um, that drives on a, a dirt road through a massive expanse of it. So it's not a mountain or a building or you know a track or a roller coaster or something. It's, it's a free-roaming vehicle in what seems to be open, open landscape, open countryside, the savanna, the grasslands of Africa. Um, but that being said, you can find something similar, you know, at your, uh, your bush gardens in Tampa. Difference: all of the landscaping and the and the, the the trees and the shrubs and the way they've they've made it is is truly authentic to. Uh, at least it was attempting to be truly authentic to Africa. You don't get the feeling that you're in the backyard of a theme park in Florida. When you come over that, you know, the one hill and the, the savannah kind of opens up in front of you, it really does have that that feel uh, to it, which I've never been to Africa personally. But from the TV, it looks <laughs> <laughs> it looks it look it looks like that. And I think those that if we're just jumping ahead, one, one of the, the things, obviously, that is carefully crafted and if you have never been, or maybe you've been a lot, and you don't notice this, notice it. When you come to that point, um, which is kind of the climax of the, the trip, that middle point where you enter the savanna, there's a definite intentional planned reveal as you come up on that big tree and then 
kind of take a left, and then it just suddenly opens up in front of you. It's a definite wow moment, and it's very intentional. I think it's also worth noting that this attraction, they say, is as large as the entire Magic Kingdom park. You could just kind of sit, plop it right down in there. Uh, so again, I can imagine you know the concept art of this when they're taking it to the executives and being like, we need this much space yeah. because uh, one attraction is going to be as big as one of your parks over there. That's That had to be a little... Uh, Holy crap, what are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but if you want to see something cool, look at Google Earth sometime and focus in on Animal Kingdom, and you'll see just the magnitude of how large the safaris are. Um, when you stop and think about it, you're like, yeah, it really is big. But when you see it in comparison to the rest of the park, you're like, wow, that is absolutely huge. Another thing that blows my mind, too, and this is for any of the parks, is right outside the safari ride, particularly there where Matt's talking about with the savannah, you know, right on the other side of the trees is just a, a little service road where cars drive in and out, employees. And and so you're, you know, like, wow, I can't believe that's right behind there. I never would have thought that because you feel like you're in the middle of the African savanna. Imagineering, and that it's one of the tricks around all of the parks. Uh, Imagineering and the, the, the landscaping trick they use, giving that what they call a false, uh, a false horizon is... Um, I mean, it's a very simple little trick. If you look, you're like, oh, okay, well, they used it there, they used it there. But, you know, it's just a very, uh, not even steady, not even gradual. It's a very quick incline of the the ground, right? And then, you know, you have tall trees in the front that, and then intentionally smaller shrubs and small trees in the back. And so they can build a little mound like that that hides a roadway or a building such as behind, um, you know, as you're walking up, animal kingdom from the parking lot you're kind of walking right by the dinosaur show building but you wouldn't know it because of this this false horizon they use it all around the safaris to give it a, a much more expansive look but also to hide the road that's right behind <laughs> right behind the grassland there yeah because that's the thing this is a theme park attraction like when you ride it you you get the sense that oh they just cleared out a bunch of trees and put animals here and we're just driving around but no, I mean, every inch of it had to be thought through. Like, the food had to be placed sort of close to the vehicle so that way the animals wouldn't be hidden back in the bushes the whole time. You want to be able to see the animals. I've heard that some of the places where the lions stay are, like, climate-controlled, so they're tempted to be closer to the vehicles. Um, all the trees, you know, were placed um, strategically. And it's, it's very much a theme park attraction that makes you feel like you're in the Serengeti, which is awesome. The- the, the termites were baited just to the right spot to build their ginormous <laughs> yeah that's some of the that's some of the rock work uh, that we talked about earlier the 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 termite mounds um, the natural barriers in uh, the Kilimanjaro safaris are also worth noting you go to your typical zoo at least the zoo I grew up going to in South Carolina which is a great zoo with you know wonderfully themed like exhibits and you know rock work and all that good stuff um, but, you know, you walk up to the rail, and there's a rail, and there's a sign about the animal. There's the animal, and between you and the animal is a very visible, huge, like, 20-foot pit, you know, that's they're not going to cross. They can't. You, you Those things exist at on the safari ride, but you cannot see them. Just, you know, they're not visible unless you're thinking, like, for instance, in the, in the lion section, what you see is... 
um, kind of a mound of grass and, and like rock work around it. And the next thing you see in your sight line is the rock work and the lions up there. Yeah, but between where they are and where you are is this hidden huge gap that separates them from just, you know, jumping over and mauling everyone to death. Um, but other than that, like between the different exhibits, you know, as you feel that it's kind of seamless, you'll notice that you pass through several gateways. Um, so those gateways separate, you know, the, the elephant section from that big grassland section with the giraffes and the zebras and the antelope from the lions. And, and even then, even in the gateway, there's um, you'll notice chains that are like uh, about two or three inches off the ground, like several that the, the vehicle just rolls right over, but apparently it um, discourages animals from, from crossing that, even if they were to come to the to that gateway. Yeah. See, I'd be like, I'm a big animal. I'll just jump over it. An elephant. <laughs> They're too tired from the Florida sun. They're like, oh, yeah, it's this day over yet. Yeah, great attraction for sure. Uh, that brings us to fact number 10, the landscape throughout the Africa section is modeled after over 500 miles of actual African territory. So we talked about how the Imagineers took at least half a dozen trips to Africa to do research. And it seems like they incorporated areas from all over Africa into this section that we now just call Africa in Animal Kingdom. So uh, there, there are sections modeled after Zanzibar. They found an old fortress there that they used in their uh, their drawings and their concept art. Um, they found this old private home in Kenya that was crumbling, and they used that in some of the buildings that you see in Africa. Of course, we've mentioned that Kilimanjaro Safaris is modeled after the open-wide Serengeti. Um, one thing I love is the village of Harambe. The word Harambe in Swahili means come together. And this was based off of an East African port that the Imagineers visited. And this was where tourists constantly come to Africa. They come to this port and then from there they begin their safari excursions. And that's kind of what you do when you go to Harambe in Animal Kingdom. You you stop there. There's the restaurant. There's the outdoor bar, which is the, uh, what is it? Kawa? Shoot. Anyway, uh, the bar that's right there. And then there's the band that plays. There's like the little place that's supposed to look like a hotel. You can eat at some restaurants there. There's the bakery. And then from there, you can board your safari or shop at the marketplace or whatever. So it's just like all these different regions of Africa that are represented in this one small section at Animal Kingdom. I love going with people who are not Disney people. And they see Harambe and they sort of freak out because of that gorilla that was killed. <laughs> it's like, well, Disney had this name before that. Yeah. But anyways, yeah, no, Africa is such a vast continent um, that it's hard to put one single theme in. So it's interesting to note how they kind of narrowed it down, even though it's still a pretty vast area that they focused on 500 miles. That's, you know, that's a long way. But I would walk 500 more. Nice. Uh, it's the Dawa bar. Sorry, that was going to bother me. Gotcha. The Dawa tree? Family Dawa? <laughs> Dawa. <laughs> Dawa general? <laughs> no. Everything's a Dawa. <laughs> <laughs> that would be good theming. I'd go there more often. 
Yeah. <laughs> it does make me wonder, though, like, do people in Egypt, when they show up and they're like, you have an Africa section, and then they show up, they're like, this isn't the Africa I know. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. I just, I love this section so much. It's just walking through those gates that always make me think of Jurassic Park because they say Africa real big, you know, and they're on either side of the bridge. I just love walking into that area because it's usually got the band playing or it's got some type of music and it's just, it just feels like a bustling marketplace and I love it. I'm there right now in my mm. head. I am. Good. Mm. Beautiful. Speaking of that band, number 11, what's the name of it? I would guess Burudika. Burudika. The band that performs daily in the Africa in the African section has an album on iTunes under the band's other name, Wasalu. Is that correct? Maiwa. <laughs> I don't know. I guess Wasalu. Okay. The the album, Live in the Village, I can say that one, features all the original songs from Animal Kingdom that include references to the park. I did not know this. So their album is available on iTunes. And it's so good. When you listen to the songs, first of all, you very much get the vibe of the Africa section. But also, the lyrics are like something about, let's meet at the Tree of Life. And then there's something that says, welcome to Harambe. Um, Hello, happy children. Welcome to Harambe. So, like, all the songs are very much Animal Kingdom exclusive. Have you ridden the roller coaster? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Have you eaten the poop brownies? (laughs) All right, we're getting racist here. Calm down. Uh, Is is this the same CD, though, that is sold in the gift shop? Because I know they sell one in there. Yeah, same one. Same one. Okay, good to know. Is it cheaper than the $18 that they charge in the... uh, yeah, I, th- I think it's like nine ninety nine. Okay, I am totally uh, buying this. I did not know this was on iTunes because I have seen this album and I have wanted to purchase it because I enjoy that kind of music as well. And and like you know, like you said, it, it's all Animal Kingdom centric. You music has such a powerful way of just transforming you to a place. And sometimes you know when you're having a bad day, you just turn it on and you're there. And so uh, yeah, you know, you want to be in the middle of that market there in Africa. Yeah, so the band, I think in Animal Kingdom, their official name is Burudika, but this album goes under the name Wasalu, which is W-A-S-S-A-L-O-U. And the album is called Live in the Village. That was also the last battle for Napoleon. I believe that was Waterloo, not Wasalu. It's African version. (laughs) Like Dawa Bar, Wasalu. <laughs> it, it's funny that the album's called Live in the Village because no part of me believes that it was recorded live, but that's okay. Oh, see, I interpreted it as Live in the Village. Oh, so it's like a, it's like this kind of subtle imperative. Yeah, Live in the Village. Live in, the, live in the Village. No, no, it's encouraging. Oh, like don't live for yourself. Live in the Village. Oh, neo Marxism. You know, see, I take it though as as the vill age, so the age of the village, Ooh. not not necessarily a literal place, this is but like more of a time. Textual criticism here. Let's move yeah. on. Um, Why do people listen to the show? <laughs> <laughs> Somebody right now is listening. Like oh, I did not know that. <laughs> I'm thinking, what is my life that I'm listening to these three boneheads? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, speaking of abject failures. 
First of all, the Lion King. Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> Are we the failure or is Wassaloo the failure? Uh, or our lives, our lives at this moment. Um, <laughs> interpreting this album's title poorly. Festival of the Lion King was thrown together using repurposed floats and was never meant to be permanent. And originally belonged to a land that was never meant to be permanent. That being Camp Minnie Mickey. Very clearly, everything about this land felt like this is going away in a month, but it did not. Yeah, this was the the, the VBS of, of Disney-themed <laughs> lands, where it's like, don't touch the props, because they'll fall off the wall. They'll just, just yeah. make it to Thursday. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, if, if you listen to any part of our show in the past, I'm sure we talked about all this, but Camp Minnie Mickey occupied the spot at which, uh, on which a future expansion was supposed to come. At that time, Beastly Kingdom. Now it is. It's not. It's not Pandora. It's more like the bridge to Pandora, where the bridge is over to Pandora. But that was the spot, and all the buildings were kind of like okay. I remember them being very nondescript. Like they just threw up some buildings and painted them brown. Um, even the Festival of the Lion King was in one of these types of buildings. Well, and, if I remember correctly, it wasn't even enclosed, right? It was open air when it first opened. Maybe. I don't remember that. And I, I, honestly, the first time I went to Festival of the Lion King was with you guys, and I think on our second or third trip. Whoa! I didn't realize that. Yeah, I don't think I ever even stepped stepped foot into Camp Minnie Mickey before that. Probably because you thought this is going away soon. What's the point? Well, yeah, the show didn't interest me all that much then, or now, but uh, I'm, I, I just because it's it's grown on me a, a little, but. But one of the things you notice if you go back and look at the, um, I think it was the Lion King parade from Disneyland. Yeah. From 1995 or 96 or whenever it was. Um, these the the four main floats that comprise the show: the giraffe, the warthog, which is Pumbaa, um, the lion, which is Simba, and the elephant. Um, did I say elephant twice? Elephant and giraffe are the other two. Yeah. yeah. Warthog, lion, elephant. They comprise the four sections, and they kind of make the make up the props. And um, so it's kind of reused, like, let's make, let's make something happen. Let's draw some crowds for a while. But the show became so very popular that it stayed and outlived the uh, transient Camp Mini Mickey and actually got its own permanent theater in Africa, which obviously makes a lot more sense. Um, but it, it's a beautiful theater and it's a beautiful location. And it almost feels like a little expansion to to Africa over there. But... Um, interesting backstory to that one. You know what's interesting? You said the word transient there, and that reminded me, in the show, they are tra- a traveling group of, of actors and singers and performers. Mm. So it kind of did feel that fit that this isn't permanent. This is just something that's kind of coming and going and just as quick as it, it was here and gone. But it's like it a circus, which is yeah. what it feels like. Honestly, it kind of has a circus vibe to it. It's got the floats, and then there are characters in it, but the majority of the show, for those of you that don't know, is uh, there's like four main hosts that sing the songs from the film, but they are set um, to acrobatics. Yeah. And like, I don't know what you call the, the, the dancers, the birds that fly up in the air. Yeah, I mean, it's just like contemporary choreography, I guess. The, the level of skill that they brought in for the show is is very impressive if you appreciate if you take the time to appreciate those those things 
Yeah, I love that. How, I love how much of a fan favorite this show has become, especially when you think about how temporary it was supposed to be. And I really think the show has remained un, remained unchanged for the most part since it debuted. But for a while there, when you looked at TripAdvisor and you know every attraction gets a ranking, you know, like it's been reviewed by fourteen hundred people and they gave it a four point eight or whatever. For a while, this was the number one rated attraction at Walt Disney World. I don't know if that's still the case, but it's funny how that was that happens. You know, something that was just probably thrown together really quick by a small team to fill some space because they ran out of money. Uh, now that we mentioned it, this kind of reflects the movie because wasn't Pocahontas supposed to be the one that they thought would take off, and Lion King was like the B team was on that, and then the Lion King became the biggest animated film of the decade, probably. And let me let me bring full fuller circle. Ready? Uh-huh. Pocahontas had her own show in <laughs> oh. Camp Mini Mickey that did not last. It was mm. not as popular as Festival of the Lion King. That's true. So, uh, they completely undersold Lion King. They they under they undercut Lion King again and again and again. That's right. Stop trying to make Pocahontas happen. I think that's the lesson we can all take from this. There's probably some microaggression going on there. You know, one's in America, one's in Africa. <laughs> I think you're thinking too deep into it. <laughs> uh, but going back to Camp Minnie Mickey, if I can, love, love, love Camp Minnie Mickey's background music. That guitar. Yeah. It's just like 45 minutes of a single guitar playing disney songs but again as beautiful and wonderful as it is like hey get that guy to come just play <laughs> some disney songs. And guitar let's record like two hours of it and we'll be good to go for a background <laughs> true but it has that feel of you're on a camping trip and some some you know guy brought his guitar with him and when you wish upon a star to do 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 I bet it's the guy who walks around Harambe Market and just plays that one melody over and over again on that instrument he made out of goat skin or whatever it is. This is like a Jack Hanna-looking white guy with a fisherman's hat on. <laughs> James Taylor. Uh, yeah. Uh, 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 this isn't about Camp Minnie Mickey, but it is funny to think about. Um, all the little character props that were around were like, like they salvaged them from some of the old style Disney stores that were going out of out of business and just stuck them in there, put some camping hats on them, fishing poles in their hands. Just look <laughs> like at pictures Donald, of it. The yeah. Donald and the Huey doing Louie. And, yeah. yeah. And they were kind of cute, but you're right. They definitely came from some closed down uh, Disney store in Keokuk, <laughs> Iowa, and they shipped them down. There. <laughs> yeah. But listen, you guys, this la this thing lasted like a decade. It's yeah. true. This land, though, I mean, as... This is like Disney on a budget. Like this land, you know, they said, here is $120. You got to make it work. <laughs> and, and that's what happened. Uh, you know? was, where's Robert Irvine? Or like bought Gordon Ramsay or something. You got 24 hours and $125 to make this happen. Make a Disneyland. Go. Yeah. <laughs> but some of the greatest art comes out of pressure and constraints oh my and gosh. setbacks and i think festival of the lion king is is evidence of that had had they had a huge budget to make a full big extravagant production it probably would have been not nearly as good as festival of the lion king maybe yeah because festival of the lion king is sort of like an artistic reimagining of the lion king story and that makes that's what makes it unique 
Yes, and it feels to me closer to the Broadway version than it does to the film, which I like as well. It adds that authenticity authenticity because it doesn't have well, I mean it still has a cartoonish sort of appeal to it, but it's not as cartoonish. Yeah. If you overlook the giant talking meerkat. Well, that leads us to fact number 13. And this is a uh, very minor fact, but it's something a lot of listeners might not realize. Throughout the park are nods to Disney, kind of like inside baseball type stuff. So you'll see four... Wait, what do you see? <laughs> 498 on the highway. You lost me at... You lost me at sports reference. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Baseball something. No, 498 was like, you know, the, the, the month and year open. So you'll see that on signs. But one of the coolest references, inside references, is that one of the trains that takes you to Rafiki's Planet Watch, the train is called the Wildlife Express. One of those trains is named the R. Baba Harpur. R. And then Baba, B-A-B-A, and then Harpoor, H-A-R-P-O-O-R, which is actually a reference to an Imagineer named Bob Harper. And this is not just any Imagineer. This is the very Imagineer who, in the late 60s and early 70s, helped Disney restore the four steam trains that are now used at the Magic Kingdom. So it's that train tie-in. And I love that. I love it, too. I didn't know. He also helped Oprah lose all her weight and then went on to host The Biggest Loser. No. Is that the same name? Yeah, his name's Bob Bob Harper. Bob Harper? (laughs) (laughs) I didn't put that together. No, this is, again, a detail, though. A different person, of course. uh, That uh, totally overlooked by 99.5% of the people that walk through the gates of the park on any given day. But for those of us who are Disney fans... We can recognize this and share this fun fact. And what a nice way to honor a man who uh, did something great for the Disney community. Mm. I like it. Fun fact number 14. The Asia section takes place in the fictional country of Anadapur. A fictional backstory ties the whole area together. Again, we talk about the devil is in the details. And... The Disney is in the details as well, because this whole area has a cohesive story that you're only going to get if you look real close. And I think the the, the main thing that kind of ties all this together is those portraits of the king and queen who are in gift shops and queues and everywhere that kind of show that these are not just individual Asian-themed things kind of pieced together, but there's a cohesive theme throughout this whole land. Yeah, it's ruled over by bloody murderous dictators uh queen and king whatever their names are and they've murdered all the villagers so that all the white people can come in and give them money wow i didn't know but that is true that checks out i'm googling yeah yeah we talked about this back on 176 you can hear all the details about anandapur and the story that ties it all together uh but it's it's just one of those things where they did not have to do it but the fact that they did it just enriches it that much more. My story's not the real one, by the way. Yes. <laughs> He's just joining us. That's not the real one. No, but I always I always make sure to point out these portraits to people because, again, it's a detail that's overlooked. I mean, that's King Ravi Zacharias there. And <laughs> <laughs> he, he has a talk later <laughs> at the theater. 
But just look for it. Just look for the signs. Like when you ride Cully River Rapids and, you know, you're going to run into the logs that have run over the water or that have fallen over your path. Like you'll see signs outside Cully River Rapids that say logging taking place, you know, beware. Or like the train that takes you up to um, the summit of Expedition Everest used to carry tea. And that's why you also see like the Royal Tea Company or whatever it's called. Royal Anandapur Tea Company. So just little details like that tie it all together. And these are things, too, that I think it's overlooked that somebody or a team of people had to sit down and they created this. This is not something that just happened, that these were intentional. And because they're intentional, they are well executed. Uh, it's not just by happenstance that this all fell fell into each other. And, and that's the thing I think that uh, what I appreciate most about it is that, you know, there was thought that went into it. Yeah. Also, uh, part of this cohesive theme and the authenticity we spoke of earlier are the things you might not notice above your head, and that is the flags near Expedition Everest. No, they did not go to uh, Party City and just buy some triangle flag streamers. These represent uh, real prayer flags from the Himalayas. so, a little lesson on traditional prayer flags. Uh, they feature five colors, which represent the five uh, elements. Blue symbolizes uh, sky and space. White symbolizes the air and the wind. Red symbolizes fire. Green symbolizes water. And yellow symbolizes earth. And so typically, the, the prayer flags, this is Hindu, Hinduism, right? I believe it's Tibetan Buddhism. Yes, yes, yes. Himalayas, yeah. So um, certainly a strong connection to the elements of Earth. Typically they feature symbols that represent, I guess, uh, different different deities or just religious symbols. Those have been taken off of the the Animal Kingdom versions and replaced with just images of animals. Uh, But still they represent the the religion and, and the particular culture of that that area in a very specific and uh, authentic way. Yeah. I don't, I don't think I realized this until recently that like, I just thought like, Oh, prayer flags are a thing. So they put them here. (laughs) You know what I mean? But they have the exact five five colors. Apparently the five colors have to be arranged in a specific order. And sure enough, the ones in animal kingdom are arranged in that order. So I just, I just love the attention to detail here. For a time you could purchase your own prayer flag string in the shop there at the exit of Expedition Everest. And I actually purchased some, I own some, so they're in a box somewhere, but- uh, <laughs> Not doing a lot of good in a box. No, I need to take them out so I can- Wave them around, whatever, yes. whatever you do with them. <laughs> I'm gonna hang them up so I can remember that we are one with the oceans. Well, I guess this actually ties into that fictional story we were talking about where uh, there's a Yeti in this mountain and the prayer flags are supposed to encourage like peace, uh, they, oh, what's, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, but basically they're just, the people of Anandapur have hung this up, have hung these up to sort of protect and cover the people from this Yeti. Do they represent, let's be a little religion one-on-one course here. Do, do they represent, do they represent prayers or are they intended almost like kind of like a rosary? Are they intended to like guide people through through specific prayers? 
like because of the order and the colors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good question. If it is Tibetan Buddhism, which I believe it is, Buddhism in general does not have a divine figure. Right. Yeah. You know, Buddhists don't believe in God. So why are they praying? I guess they're they're praying to the universe because Buddhists still pray, like the Dalai Lama. But Lama. like the element, they do pray, they meditate, don't they? they yeah, they, yeah. prayer. So perhaps these guide them to think about things as they meditate. If you are a Buddhist of the Tibetan flavor, you can uh, email us with with your your. Uh, your vitriol about our ignorance uh, and maybe enlighten, enlighten, ooh, enlighten us uh, <laughs> yes. about 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 this stuff because uh, I don't know. Um, but I do know, like in in Yeti lore, the villagers don't want the Yeti to be gone. Right. If I remember the story being told, they're not in fear that the Yeti is going to attack them per se, and they don't want it removed. They actually see it as a protective. Mm. Uh, Figure, and that's mm-hmm. why they're offering the sacrifices to win its favor, that it will continue to protect them. So perhaps the prayer flags are meant more towards. Uh, Derek mentioned something about covering. Maybe there, it's it's like a protection cover, you know, between them and the yeti. Yeah, that's possible. I like that. If not, let's just go with that and say that's true. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so our last two facts have been about story. How it, Anandapur has. The continuing story, then you've got the prayer flags. Well, fact number 16 in that same vein is this. Like all other Disney attractions, Maharaja Jungle Trek has a story. So if you don't know, this is when you walk past Kali River Rapids, you come to a sort of dead end, but it's actually the entrance to this Jungle Trek, which in any other zoo would just be a walking path where you see animals. This is where the tigers are. But because it's Disney, they created this story. And I love this fact because it's not something that you would ever put together just on your own. But it makes a lot of sense. So this Jungle Trek, this Jungle Trek takes place in the mystical royal forest of Anandapur, which is this paradise of trees. There are some temple ruins. And this is where wild animals are known to be found, namely tigers. Legend has it that the area was at one time the hunting ground for wealthy maharajas, or kings, basically. And they enclosed this nearby forest for their own use so they could have royal hunting parties, kill these tigers, uh, they could find their game with greater ease because they would have exclusive access. Unfortunately, one of the kings met his untimely demise on one of his own hunting expeditions. So this was kind of... A, a stop was put to all of this. No more hunting for fun, and a greater spec, a greater respect over time started to develop for the relationship between man and the animal kingdom. So, instead of hunting in this area, the locals chose to reopen this former hunting ground and turn it into a royal preserve. So that is what you're visiting. You see the murals that are just beautiful. These hand-painted murals that I absolutely love. They were part of this hunting ground for the Maharajas. But now it's a preserve where you can come see the tigers that are being protected. And if I remember correctly, I believe this Fallen King's grave is featured on the trek as well. So you know like when you are past the tigers and you're about to enter into the birdhouse I believe and there's like this 
covered area that you enter into, and then the door to the birdhouse is right there with the uh, chains or whatever. And there's this funky-looking turtle-looking statue. And apparently, and, and there's no like, there's no little plaque or anything there. Nothing that explains this, but apparently that's what it is. Uh, is this backstory to this uh, king that died there? Gosh, I love that. Uh, also, you'll notice that Raja is the name of Jasmine's tiger. Oh, that's true, yeah. Tie in. Fact number 17 about Animal Kingdom, and that is Finding Nemo the Musical features completely original songs written by the same married couple who wrote the songs in Frozen. So Finding Nemo the Musical, of course, is the uh, main show, the only show that is featured now at the Theater in the Wild, and it's been there over 10 years now. Uh, Previously, there was Tarzan Rocks and I believe a Jungle Book show in this theater. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, But then they picked Finding Nemo to be their next one, and uh, it has stuck. And so the songwriters, Robert and... Oh, her name just went right out of my head. Kristen. Kristen Lopez. Uh, They wrote the music for this, completely original songs. Um, And it's funny, when you watch Finding Nemo, there are phrases that the characters say that clearly they watched the movie and wrote the songs pretty much a lot of places word for word of what the dialogue in the movie is because they will say the line... And then I'm able to sing the next line that's in the song, uh, even though that line doesn't exist in the film. Um, But they did a good job, in my opinion. I know you guys were slow to come around to it, per se, which we've discussed before. Well, I don't want to come around to it. I don't dislike it as much as I once did, (laughs) which is just about as good as it gets for me. So, I mean, just take what you... (laughs) Take, take what you can. <laughs> I mean, considering how much you hate the songs from Frozen, I'll give you that. Yeah, that's pretty good. The more I think about this, don't quote me on this, because I'd have to do some research. Is this the only show in a U.S. Disney park that is, has completely original music? Because you think of, like, Lion King or even Mickey and the Magical Map or, I mean, uh, Phil Hart Ma- Magic. I don't know, but a lot of them use Disney songs in the show, but this one does not. I'm, yeah, I, I think it would be for. Well, well, I guess it depends on this kind of show. I mean, there's the Frozen musical in DCA that uses songs from Frozen, so that doesn't count. So American Adventure, well, that because it has songs that existed before. Yeah. So I mean, I think this is unique in that way that they created from scratch. I mean, other than the story being based on a movie, but they pretty much created from scratch these puppets, these songs. Yeah, and let's give Disney credit here, because they could have easily picked something that was already written and and could have stuck it in there in the same way that they did with Tarzan and uh, and Jungle Book, but they started like you said from scratch. Like this is a movie that has zero songs in it, other than when she hums, just keep swimming. <laughs> so you know they 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 really decided to go from the ground up on this, and and it paid off. Yep, I agree. Yeah, I don't think Finding Nemo the Musical gets enough credit. It, it did when it came out, first came out, but it, the lasting power that it's had, it still draws a huge crowd every single day. They're doing, what, eight shows a week? Or eight shows a day, rather. Um, that, that It's a lot of commitment. Yeah. Finding Nemo the Musical is in 
Dino Land. And Ooh, good segue. That's the setting for our next fact. Yeah, you like that? <laughs> In Dino Land USA, number 18, by the way, you can get a photo with Dino Sue, a nearly exact replica of Sue, the largest and most complete T-Rex skeleton ever found, um, which is now on display at the Field Museum in Chicago. Uh, where where is this out front of the Dino Institute? Yes. Oh, is it? I mean, out outside. Yes. Well, not out front, but like on the the big walkway. You've passed the the entrance to the Dino Institute. It's on that large central walkway. Is that where it is? Yes. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. That it's size and all. It's not as big as I thought a T Rex would be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll give you that. Like you would think, the one inside the queue is the replica. Yeah, but it's not. Oh, yeah. I see. I, that's what I thought. That's why I was confused. I thought this replica was the one that is in the queue there, where Bill Nye talks about it. No, that is a Carnotaurus, which is what you meet, you know, in the ride three times. Um, yeah, which is funny because I've actually been to the Field Museum in Chicago, and I, I, I can, re- I remember Sue, and I remember taking a picture with it. But in my mind, I remember it being bigger than it is but i was like 13 so now uh, one of the little side notes here is that disney in some way helped purchase the actual sue skeleton in 1997 that's what i've heard like when it was placed into the field museum mm-hmm. disney parks and resorts was partly responsible for making sure it was preserved there Hey, I would have been like, want- look, I paid for this. Bring it down to our new park that opens next year. If you want to watch a fascinating documentary about that discovery of Sue and the controversy behind it being going to auction and all that kind of thing, it's called Dinosaur 13. Um, it was on Netflix. I'm looking now. It's no longer on there. So I don't know what platform to watch it on at the moment, but really, really interesting. You don't realize how cutthroat paleontology is until you <laughs> watch this document. There's a whole lot of money going on with these dinosaur digs and uh, really interesting. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. Many paleontologists that just so happen to listen to our show. <laughs> and if you're a Buddhist paleontologist... A Buddhist pale- totally- <laughs> Yeah. Double honor. We'll have you on as a guest. <laughs> Buddhist paleontologist. Don't lie. <laughs> I got books on Buddhism. I'll ask you some questions. You better answer them. (laughs) Tibetan Buddhism at that. Um, Where was I? What in the world was I saying? Uh, Correct you if you're wrong. You're a paleontologist. Fossils are not skeletons, right? Because the bones have long been... They're gone. I believe bones turn into stone. So there actually are That's bones. But a fossil is an imprint into the stone. Yeah. Okay. So that's what that's what is left by these, not actual bones. Yeah, I think there, it, it is the actual bone, but it has just been calcified. Fossilized. Yeah, and, fo- and, and turned into stone. It is stone. no longer bone material. In the same way that like a tree petrifies. Ah, okay. Stone. Learning all sorts of things today. Listen, I've been watching a lot of Bill Nye Saves the World on Netflix. It's really good, guys. Nice. 
All right, well, let's get back to Animal Kingdom, where our 19th fact says this. The park is full of nods to attractions that used to exist or that never came to be. And at first glance, I don't think you would ever notice these things, but let me list let me list a few examples for you. So on a lot of the artwork, like you'll notice this on all the benches that used to have that sign out front, which I think is back now. And there's a lineup of animals, and one of them is always a dragon. Which, when you think about it, there are no dragons in Animal Kingdom. That's because, as we mentioned before, there was going to be a whole land called Beastly Kingdom that was dedicated to mythical creatures. And that's why there's a dragon still on the artwork. I personally think you could easily switch out the dragon for a banshee, and that would solve all of your problems. But they keep it there as a nod. There's also a section of the parking lot called Unicorn. There was going to be a unicorn maze inside Beastly Kingdom, which is what that's a reference to. And Dinosaur used to be called Countdown to Extinction, and they have left a lot of nods to Countdown Countdown to Extinction that you can see there. So, like, the Time Rovers say CTX on them. So all sorts of little hidden gems like that that the Imagineers could have removed if they had wanted to, but they sort of leave as little Easter eggs for uh, for, um, fans with eagle eyes, I guess. Are they called Easter eggs because they're hidden? I'm going to say yes. Because you only notice them uh, once a year. Mm. Okay, <laughs> while we're talking about things that never came to be, I came across this, and I want to know if you guys have heard this. So you talked about the three-tiered carousel that was going to be the park icon. They got rid of that, now it's a tree of life. Have you heard the story how Joe Rody wanted the entrance to be themed to Noah's Ark? I've heard of the Genesis Gardens. Yeah, I've heard the Genesis Garden. I never heard the Noah's Ark part. Yeah, I think it was kind of tied together. Um, but you were gonna—it was gonna be this giant ark that you walk through, and it's—I think the idea was that it had shipwrecked and all the animals had spilled out. I'm not kidding. I really—I mean, I saw concept art for this. I've heard interviews where he's talked about this, and then. Lots of- issues with that but well yeah and, and he <laughs> noticed all of those issues and thought maybe we should not do that i guess but they were somewhere theological accuracy uh, <laughs> <laughs> well i don't think he was so much concerned with that necessarily no but. yeah yeah there's lots of fun things that like you said have been left around and personally i love that they still have the dragon and i hope they keep it because i think it has a, a touch of that originality there um you know a banshee's a banshee but I'm still not convinced that Banshees and Blue People will be around in Animal Kingdom in five to ten years. I'm, I'm, uh, yeah, me neither. I'm convinced that this land is going to go through a major transformation uh, in just a few years, in which the the core of it will be kept the same, but some of those James Cam- James Cameron things will be disappearing. Watch it become Beastly Kingdom and. It'll be a wonderful story about the, the the land that was supposed to be, would never be, and then was. Mm. And the, <laughs> the 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 river journey and the the shaman will be replaced with a unicorn. Yeah, I, I'm picturing the unicorn from uh, from Inside Out, Prince Rainbow Unicorn. Yes, <laughs> I'm picturing the unicorn from the uh, Poopery. Uh, no, the Squatty Potty commercials. <laughs> Pooping out little rainbow turds. Either way, I'm fine with it. I love yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll allow it. 
All right, and uh, number 20 on the countdown of 20 Animal Kingdom Park Facts to celebrate Animal Kingdom's 20th anniversary. And that is, the park is essentially a fully realized version of Walt Disney's vision for the Jungle Cruise. If you uh, know your your Disney history, you know that Walt always wanted a boat ride and uh, wanted it to have real animals that people were able to go on the boat ride and see. Uh, But he was told in the 1950s, hey, this is going to be a challenge because, well, for several reasons, but one of the main reasons being animals like to sleep at night or sleep it during the day and they're awake at night. And uh, that is a challenge even to this day over at uh, Kilimanjaro Safaris. My favorite is when we go by the lions and they're like, here's where the lions are. They sleep 18 hours a day. You can kind of see a paw if you squint really hard. (laughs) So, you know, there there were some problems, but absolutely Disney's Animal Kingdom, I think, is the culmination of the passion that Walt had for nature and wildlife and animals. And you can see that in a lot of what he did, going all the way back to like the True Life Adventure uh, films that he, you know, kind of commissioned to start. Uh, He always had animals featured with him on his uh, television programs. And like you said, the Jungle Cruise really was supposed to feature live animals, and he had to settle for the audio animatronics. But it's nice to see that this vision really has been carried all the way through. Headed by a man who I consider to be one of the modern Walt Disney's, and that is Joe Rohde. This is a great bookend to the show, honestly, because we started with you mentioning that piece of merchandise that has Walt on it with the animals, like photos of him with animals. And so even the merchandise for the 20th anniversary is honoring the fact that Animal Kingdom was not just like this brainchild of Joe Rohde that had absolutely nothing to do with the Walt Disney Company. It all goes back to him. Yeah, that's funny. You know, we recorded that intro like six months ago. So it's funny how it all pieces together in in post-production. Crazy. It's what the Bible says. For from him and to him is all things Walt Disney blessed forever. Amen. Amen and amen. Well, I mean, what better note is there to end on, really? So I'm going to wrap it up here. Animal Kingdom, 20 years. Congratulations. We love you. Can't We can't wait to see where you go from here. Uh, listeners, if you want to find us online, you can do so at madchatters.net. You can do so... Wait, what? <laughs> I never say our website. That was weird. <laughs> uh, you can find us on Twitter at Mad Chatters or Instagram at Mad Chatters. You can find us on Facebook. And as always, you can send your emails to comments at madchatters.net. See you next week. Hey, uh, uh, a lot of the fans have been getting their Mad Chatter t-shirts that have been ordered and posting pictures online. And I love it. So uh, keep taking pictures and uh, send them to us and we'll retweet them. It's nice to know that you guys are enjoying those. Yes. And if you want a Mad Chatters t-shirt... Don't email me because you're too late. Oh, wah, 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 wah. Next time. Maybe next time. But until then, take a little time to find the magic in every day. Bye-bye now. transition into
Yeah. All right. Is this it? Is that one you do? I think so. We do it so often, I forget the original. Is this, is this the one that really used for you? It's time for take five. I couldn't remember. Wait, hold on. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Take two. All right, pause. So for mine, I want you to just, I'm going to yell something, but I want you to just bleep five times, like, a, like a, I'm cussing. If you really want me to cuss, I'll cuss. And then you just no, I can do it. I need to find the bleep sound effect somewhere. Though. All right. But I feel like I need to say something so it sounds like you're actually bleep. So yeah, I'll... yeah, it's fine. Flip, shoot, heck, dang, mother. <laughs> flip. <laughs> uh, flip. I want to cuss and, you know. It's a family yeah, show. Yeah, you're so restrained. <laughs> <laughs>